It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Welcome to Brains, a podcast exploring the inner workings of our brains and how film and television portray them. Hosted by me, film and television editor, Sarah Taylor. And by me, writer-director, Heather Taylor. Before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge that the lands from which we recorded this podcast are part of territories that have long served as a gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples. And we are thankful, as guests on this land, to be able to live, work, and gather here. And today's episode, we'll be talking with Marie Franzgeret, documentary filmmaker, director, and producer who created the feature dog, San Mama, or Unmothered. In this touching documentary about her family, Marie France blends home movie footage and interviews to give viewers a window into her own personal experience of grief. Through the lens of the film and beyond, we'll discuss the death of a parent when you're a child and how this impacted Marie France's life and work as a filmmaker. A quick reminder to our listeners that this interview should not be taken as medical advice, and it is for informational purposes only. Because everyone's brain is different, please consult your healthcare professional if you have any questions. We will be discussing death and dying, so please be advised. And now, Marie France. So excited to have my dear friend and colleague join us today, Marie France. Thank you for being with us on Brains! Brains. Thanks so much for asking me to be here. I'm excited to be here to talk to you, you two. And thank you for creating this show. It's it's so great to have a place to talk about all this stuff. And this topic's not an easy one, but it's important. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah. Well, to start things off, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a TV producer and I've um, produced and directed many different types of things from kids programming to unscripted TV to documentaries for uh, a little bit over 20 years now. Um, I got my first shot in the industry when I was a teenager. I was only 14 and I've stayed in the industry ever since. So I've been doing it for quite a while. So communicating via this medium of like television and storytelling is really something that's shaped shaped my life. I directed a feature doc three years ago called Unmothered and it centers around my grief of losing my mom at a really young age and a tape she left me when she knew she was going to die. And that's been kind of like the big project of my career. That's, I guess I was working towards, towards something like that. And it's, it's been a, quite an adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a little bit about me. Could you let us know a little bit more about the project that you did and how you decided that it was the right time to make that documentary? I always say, like, I wish I never actually had to make this movie. Mm. I wish I never had to make it. I'm grateful it exists. It really helped me, and I'm glad that it exists and that it can help other people through their grief um, feel less alone. But it sucks that I had to actually make it because, you know, whenever wants to lose their mom. Why did I decide to make this film? I was in a really transitional phase in my life about five years ago. I was about 35 and it was coming up to my mom's 20th anniversary of her death. And I was at that age. I wanted kids. I wanted to get married. I wanted certain things to kind of start 
moving in my life. And I felt so stuck for many reasons. And then my past seemed to kind of demand more of my attention. I was asking myself a lot of questions that I would have liked to have my mom there to ask at that Mm. time in my life as a woman Mm. who was kind of feeling stuck. Something inside me just said, okay, I knew I had these questions, this questioning. I knew I, this is all I was thinking about. I had this beautiful tape that my mom left me when I was young. And I knew that that was a powerful thing that I had. And I felt this sort of push to do something with it. And like I said, because I've been in this industry so long, it's kind of my way of communicating and letting people know. It was just, it's just so part of my identity. So I was like, I'll make a film about what's happening (laughs) (laughs) in my life. And maybe other women are feeling like this, or I don't know. I just felt like it was time to do something like that. So I embarked on this journey to make this film, which I thought was going to be more exploring the effects of mother loss on women and young girls and ended up turning into a film quite a bit more personal than I thought it was going to be and more about me and around my relationship with my mom, Mm -hmm. really. So for three years, plus the release of it, so basically four years, I was like in this world with my mom. Mm. I made a movie with my mom. Together we made this thing. So yeah, it was like this weird existential time that propelled me to make this movie. What was the experience like to sit with that, to to make this film with your mom for that length of time? I love saying that. I always love saying like I made this film with my mom. And you did though. You really did. Your mom was with you, right? So you did. And she was in it. Like, I remember watching the film and I was like, I got to know your mom. Like, I really got to know her. And it was so special. Uh, Yeah, that always warms my heart when people say that. I feel like we worked alongside each other, made a movie together. It was hard. It was Mm -hmm. lonely. It was excruciating. But I wanted to be with her and I wanted to do this with her. And we did it together. And so it's kind of a beautiful thing that came from her, her passing Mm -hmm. away. I was really happy with her inside those moments. Mm -hmm. It felt really good. It felt really good to rediscover her, who she was, look at old footage, listen to her voice, talk to her friends, really find out who this person was. It felt really, really good for me. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a way to see her and hear her again, trying to kind of capture my mom's essence this way that I knew how to do felt really, really good. Um, So it's like an amazing feeling mixed with a lot of doubt, loneliness, heartbreaking pain. So it was a pretty intense couple of years. Now, you were were 10 when your mom passed? Is that right? I was 13. 13, 13. How did you manage grief as a young girl? What was your understanding of it? Yeah, the short answer to that question is I didn't Mm. understand it or manage Mm. it. Basically... That's such a good question. And when I was like reflecting on this, I'm like, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't. We don't learn about grief or death at school really or in books until it happens to us. So once I lost my mom, then I was thrown into therapy. Then I was given books and resources and groups with other bereaved kids. But before anything happens, if you think about it, We don't really have resources. You don't know how to approach that with kids, you know? And the sad thing is that you never, if you don't talk about it, 
Like I never thought that would happen to me. So there's like that shock. Yeah. And then witnessing my mother's death is like the most painful thing that could have ever, ever, ever happened to me or ever could ever happen to a kid. If you think about it, like Mm -hmm. when you're a young kid, your parents are your your world. And so it's like the worst thing that that could happen. So the only sense really you can make of grief as a kid is that, and I think this is after a lot of work, I realized, you know, there must be, I was thinking there must be something wrong with me or am I being punished? So there was a lot of that going on, I think, for me as a kid and a teenager and an adult. Um, and I think it's maybe similar with other types of grief, like divorce or losing a friend or a sister or moving, having big changes in your life. Like you, as a kid, you think like, am I being punished for this? Did I do something to deserve this? Unhealthily, I think that's what happened. I don't do that anymore. I try not to anyways. It would be useful for kids to know that, you know, life doesn't exist without death and somehow try to teach kids that death exists and to realize how precious life is and moments are with the people that you love and your family and to learn the feeling of gratefulness through that somehow, teaching them that. So yeah, I didn't know how to manage it. I'm just starting to manage it now, five years ago, you know? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because you're you're saying things like, you know, I felt like it was my fault. Like, how were the adults handling grief around you? How were they interacting with you during this time? When I was younger, I'm, I'm being honest, and throughout adulthood, I was really resentful of the lack of support from adults that I got. Mm. Um, I felt really alone, and I felt like I had to be there for them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? As a kid, like... You don't know. You don't have the tools no. to understand. Yeah. And you just see people in front of you feeling things. So you have to kind of pull it together yes. for them. And that so, makes me so sad as an adult mm-hmm. to think. And it would make, you know, the adults around me sad to hear me say that too, because obviously that's not what they wanted. But as I made this documentary, I went and interviewed a whole bunch of people who knew my mom. So her friends, her sister, her, my dad, her husband, mm-hmm. her, my sister, her daughter. And I learned to like dissociate my mom's death with just something that happened to me. Mm. And be like, oh, my dad lost his wife. Yeah. yeah. My sister lost her mom. Her sister lost her sister. Her friends yeah. lost their best friend. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> they were all <laughs> grieving and sad and in shock. And this thing happened to them and me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I have a lot more compassion now. Yeah. For the adults that were that were grieving, but as a kid, you don't know that. Yeah, I was just say like your your brain isn't developed yet to know that you're not the center of the universe. Being a kid and dealing with big emotions is something else. It's and you you don't know what's happening when you're in it. Yeah, and even as a as a grown human, <laughs> you don't even know. You know, sometimes it's scary, and you understand maybe a bit more, and it's still hard, right? So when you were creating Unmothered, also known as Sans Maman, did I say that right? Mm-hmm. It's French. Yeah, Sans Maman. Marie, Marie France is French, French-Canadian. So when you went into it, did you have a plan on how you would take care of yourself emotionally through the process of creating the film? Or did you realize that you needed to do that? Yeah, that's such a good question. I wish somebody would have asked me that question when I started working on the film, because I have to admit that I don't think I took good care of myself while I was going through this. Because as a producer, as a career producer, that's my job, a director, a producer, it was really hard for me to separate the work with the story. Mm -hmm. 
like I would highly recommend if you're putting yourself in your own work to just really have a therapist with you budget for some sort of yeah yeah help because the intuitive work of making a film it tore me apart like I was really torn between what I wanted the film to be and what I thought others wanted right yeah so it was really, really hard. And I felt it really hard to take care of myself and my emotions through that because it was the pressure of making a movie, making my producers happy, uh, the funders, you know, everything that goes into our industry. But I had an amazing editor. And that's where editors are so special because we spent a full year together. Pauline uh, Decroix edited it. And finally, her and I, throughout that year of editing, which was when most of the actual like work happened for me, in my grief and the story, um, we finally found a narrative that made sense and felt right for me. Mm-hmm. And she really taught me to say, like, you know, you have to do what feels right for you. And so much changed in editing. And it's I, I saw it as such a, a metaphor for, like, attempting to put order into such chaos that my life had kind of become. And finally was able to give it a sense of meaning. Mm that way so I didn't know the path the movie was going to take even though my producers wanted me to define that constantly of course (laughs) Um, (laughs) and that that changed me as a producer too I have a lot more empathy and compassion for directors who are working on difficult things to I understand what it feels like to try to define a story when you're in the middle of it especially in a documentary I mean you don't know what's going to happen and choosing to put my own life on the big screen my family's life um very intimate pictures, family movies, my mom's voice, this, and sharing this tape that I held so close to me my whole life. I was like, that's the thing I guarded. You know, if there was a fire in my house, like that's the thing I would grab my mother's tape that she recorded for me when she knew she was going to die. And it has all of her advice for me on it. It was just a, a lot of work to decide to put all that up there. Yeah. It's interesting because as you talk about this, like you said earlier, that you came to realize through this process that it was not that you experienced it, but so did your family and her friends. And I think a lot about that as like creators creating work that is intimate. How did you also prepare your family to experience this story in this capacity? Yeah, that's a that's a hard question for me. I obviously was really open with my family, especially my immediate family, my dad and my sister, like I'm doing this. And there's a part in the movie at the beginning of the documentary where I talk to my dad and I say, you know, I asked him on camera, you know, how do you feel about me doing this? And he says so beautifully, you know, I think there's a reason you're doing this. And I feel that there must be something that you need to get out of this. And I'm here to help you through it. You know, and that was so Mm -hmm. validating. Mm -hmm and beautiful. And I I tried to keep them in the loop as much as possible, even though I was going through quite a selfish process where it was really about me. And Mm. it, it wasn't until the end that all of these, this illuminating information that separated me from the story that I could feel like compassion more for my, for my family. I'd love to be like, Oh, this made, this was miraculous. And we're so great now and it changed everything, but it it doesn't. It's still, grief is like, you know, ongoing. This is still had a huge impact in my dad's life. If you watch Unmothered, it's, he's a big character in it and he's still processing stuff. And so is my sister. And um, 
I don't know. I think to be honest, grief and this loss pulled our family apart, not just my immediate family, but my mom's family too. And it just did. And sometimes it does because it's too hard and that's okay. It sucks, but it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It is. But, but in our field and when you make a, a documentary, I've done some harder documentaries with other people that have nothing to do with my life. And I like to think that I'm I'm not bad at making people feel comfortable and open and safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I try, I mean, I obviously tried to do that with everyone in, involved in, in this documentary as well and make them feel like they're doing something for the greater good and mm-hmm. an experience that might touch other people. On that note, you, you did get a lot of feedback and people reaching out to you after the fact who had watched your film. What was it like getting getting those sort of having those sort of interactions from such a personal story that was about you and your family and your mother. Yeah. The, the release of a, of this documentary, I mean, it didn't travel too, too far, but I I had, you know, a nice opportunity to take it to movie theaters uh, across the country and, and be there and watch it with audiences and, hearing my mother's voice on the big screen and like experiencing that with people is so intense and so Mm -hmm. special. Lots of strangers, people in the audience came up to me after and told me about their own experiences with loss and trauma and how it shaped them. And I was always so surprised that people were so open to sharing and it made me really see the need for super honest dialogue about this mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. I was like, yeah. oh, well, people want to talk about this. They've come here because they, I mean, I didn't hide the subject of the film. They knew what the topic was. It's maybe triggering, but I really realized how it can be really comforting to mm-hmm. talk about it all together. This idea of community is so important. Yeah. And then, and sharing in that moment, like together, people experiencing that with me. I think maybe they felt like if I can open up like that to them, they feel like they can open up to me. And I was so grateful. I mean, I remember staying for hours after screenings and mm. people would line up and tell me like one after wow. the other, like my mom died, my dad died, my brother died, this happened. Uh, you know, and it, not just about me, but they connected with the other characters, like my mom's friend or my mom's sister or my dad. And so it was really validating for me, made me feel less alone. I'm so grateful for those people. And I still, once in a while, get an email here and there about somebody who's watched the film and tells me everything that they've been through. And I don't try to offer advice or anything back. It's I just take it and I'm so grateful and appreciative that people feel like they can share their stories with me too. And that's the point, I guess. That's the point of working in our industry mm-hmm. is to help facilitate conversations and discussions. How do you think now, though, that you have experienced this? I mean, that must have been difficult, too, to like <laughs> a take, lot of information to take, take in, all right? that that stuff on you. But how do you, after, you know, creating this project, think differently about approaching new work? There's a lot of talk now in the cross industry, I feel. And I feel a lot of people feel like, well, I have to show my unique point of view. I have to essentially be talking about my trauma all the time, that I have to put it into my work, that I have to show who I am and reveal sometimes the stuff inside of me that is still painful. 
how are we able to protect ourselves or think maybe differently about this as we approach our work or like as you approach work, like you were saying beforehand, like, you know, choosing work is important too to think about like, I think your own mental health, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I recently started developing a new documentary with a very hard subject matter. I dealt with kind of a true crime type of theme of the death, the mysterious death of a 17-year-old girl in the 70s. And the story is fascinating. As a documentary filmmaker, I'm completely intrigued. I feel the injustice of an unsolved crime in my community. I feel the need to look into it and give a voice to people. Like that's that's what, that's what I do. And yeah, that's why you do yeah. what you do. Yeah, that's why we both, <laughs> all, all, all three of us do what we do, right? Yeah. Like that is, exactly. yeah, yeah. But recently I've been lucky enough to be married, turn 40 and become a stepmom to three beautiful kids. And that's something that I did not expect to happen in my life. I've been very defined by my work. Mm-hmm. And now that this has happened, everything is shifted in my mind where I know that if I take on a documentary, it's going to be three, four, five years of work mm-hmm. uh, to do something. And that's going to be something I think about all the time. There's going to be books and research and, you know. It's all consuming. <laughs> yes. It's all consuming Constantly sometimes. Constantly yeah. thinking about this. And I love that. But after making Unmothered and going through the changes that I did, which I honestly think came from making Unmothered, I'm much better at saying, you know what, maybe this is not the right time for me to take on such a heavy subject because I know it's Mm -hmm. probably not going to do justice to the story. It'll be dangerous for me, dangerous for the, the people involved because these stories are real, they're real people. And I'm not just making this to make money in our industry you know it is my job but it's also such a human job storytelling in this way um yes so I'm able to guilt ish free <laughs> so <laughs> obviously about letting a project go that had development funding and stuff like that um but I know that it's better yeah for me and for everyone around me and so I've learned so much from that so now I can take care of of myself and and the people who are you know opening up in film in documentary films so I think once I'm in a better place I'll be able to do that type of project again that's a huge realization yeah that's huge it is huge and it's like maybe people other creators hearing you say that will give them permission to be like well what is I am the the storyteller and if I'm not in my best sort of state yeah maybe it's not doing justice to the people that are in the story Mm -hmm. right and that's where something that I always kind of live by as an editor of documentaries is we're yeah you're helping a great a director creator tell the story that they have in, in mind but you do have to be very sensitive and mindful of the people that are on screen and the people that were Mm -hmm. trying to help tell their story and how they're going to feel and the outcome for them and sometimes we forget that when we're in the midst of making something, they're just something on the screen, they're a character in our movie, but they're real and they and and what they what we tell can affect and change their life in a good or bad way, right? It's so important. But I think too like so coming from the place of fiction, 
even with fiction, like being very careful about the representation of the people you have on screen and the stories you're telling. And I think a lot about this, like um, there's a, an amazing film called Scarborough mm, that so has been winning awards. Yeah. I watched it and I it was like watching my childhood. Yeah. I, I actually, to be honest, I could only watch the first. I didn't watch all of it. It was so well done. It was so, I'm so, I'm interested. The fact that you had the same feeling as me, we never, we haven't talked about this. And I, it, it was so well done, but it was so real and so real for maybe kids who grew up in improvised area or whatever it might be yeah. in that that world right anyway so i i like i cried for, i cried from my heart yeah like i cried from my heart and it made me think a lot about the responsibility as film as sorry <laughs> i'm the one now i'm gonna cry <laughs> um no it made me really think about the responsibility as filmmakers that we have to our audiences not just to ourselves as creators but to our audiences like i want to tell some stories that may be difficult but how do i protect my audience? How do I protect myself? I spoke to someone recently because I do take deeply personal things into my work, whether or not you realize it. Um, And I said, you know, you need to talk about your scars and not your wounds. And in saying that, you only have to share what you want to share. That you don't have to go to the dark places if you don't want to. And I think sometimes we feel obliged as creators, as artists, that we must go to those places. And I'm like, if you don't want to, you do not have to. And also, like, in some cases, that trauma that you can't talk about is also a trauma that someone else can't talk about. And maybe it's okay to find a different way to tell that story through a theme or an experience that's a little different that allows space for everyone or through the guise of comedy or through the guise of you know, a different type of documentary storytelling. Or for me, sometimes I go into horror and supernatural and you'd think, well, that's scarier. I'm like, no, but you're taking us a little bit away. You're giving space to allow people to be in the fantasy of it, but not see themselves so clearly that it's like rewatching their past. That's how I've been trying to think about it. But it took watching a film like that to realize, and maybe it was the same experience, like having something so deeply personal to watch something go... Whoa, this is great, <laughs> but it's hard. <laughs> but then also, who is the audience for this? While I was touring Unmothered at festivals, I was at a festival in a small town in Quebec. And um, I sometimes I didn't watch the whole movie. I'd go to the bathroom or would just wait in the lobby um, until it was over. And I was in the bathroom and there was a woman crying in the stall beside me. I just kind of got out and washed my hands. And she looked at me because I'm in the, the movie. Yeah. So she recognized me and she's like, she was upset and kind of mad at me. And she's like, I'm, I can't watch, I can't finish watching this. I have to go home. And she wasn't apologetic. She wasn't like, I'm so sorry. I have to leave your film. She's like, I should have never come here. I, it's too much for me. I got to go. And I, I was really not hurt, but I was like shook and was like, oh my gosh, this goes so much beyond what I needed or what story I wanted to tell or whatever. Like people are taking this to heart and living through their own things. It is really raw unmothered. And and I don't believe, like like you say, Heather, I, I don't think that just because we're creators and artists, and, you know, I don't know why I always qu- quotation myself. <laughs> I do the but same thing too. <laughs> we're artists. Um, we're artists, it's okay. We have it. to be dramatic and, yeah. you know, take yeah. from the deep. It is a natural thing that happens with people like us because we have to find 
inspiration somewhere and we draw it from, I guess, our own experiences, which is normal. Mm -hmm. But um, no, we definitely don't have to go as deep as I, I did. It, it can be hard for, for a lot of people. And we have to be sensitive to that and take care of our audiences also, like Sarah was saying, as much as the people in the film or the, the people making it. Mm-hmm. Us having the privilege to do this thing, work and transport people to a place that they may have been and haven't dealt with is super powerful. And it's a privilege and it's mm-hmm. touchy mm-hmm. and very powerful. Since making your film and going through this like Mourning and grief is a constant, as you said earlier, and something that Heather and I have been like learning and discussing that grief is a human experience. We can't control how it appears. It is part of being human. How do you look at it differently now that you've done a little more digging and you created this story? How do you view grief now? Mm. I think I see it less concretely, like less as the stages of grief that you have to work through. I think I see it more so as like, a dance of like preserving the old memories and opening up to a new life because life is completely different when you lose someone you loved. So preserving my mom's tape, like my life depended on it and making this film made me kind of release it a little bit. Mm. Mm. And so because of that, I think I see grief as more of a way for I'm letting myself find meaning in it now. Whereas before I was like, as if there's meaning in this, like I don't, it's unfair when you lose someone close, but um, through a lot of work, I'm able to find meaning in it now, which is something I couldn't do until I was ready. And um, it's normal for a grieving mind to feel no hope after loss. That's totally normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's okay. Took me mm-hmm. 25 years. So I think it's okay. But when you're ready to hope again, I hope that you'll be able to find meaning and that bad days are not what your life is destined to be. Mm. It doesn't mean, and I'm good at saying, telling myself that my grief is not smaller now. It's just maybe me that's gotten bigger and is able to have a bit more control over it rather than it controlling me. Mm. And that feels really good. And it's like the lotus in the mud. Like the lotus is this beautiful flower and it needs to grow in mud. And sometimes our worst moments can be the seeds of the best moments. And I'm not trying to be preachy as I say that. It took a lot of time for me to get there, to get here. Yeah. Um, I drowned in my sorrow for, for a long, long, long time. And for me, the meaning I found was connecting with other people. Other people finding meaning can be like meaning in the afterlife or meaning in the way that you said goodbye to the person that left or memories that you share somehow or cherish. There's no, like you said, Sarah, there's no path or definition to grief or answer. It's such a personal process. And I see it so much more broadly rather than such a thing that I experienced. I'm, I'm more able to connect and feel what other people are feeling now. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious now that you, you know, married and you're stepping to like wonderful children. And, <laughs> so exciting. But it's so exciting. But how do you think now, and maybe this isn't a question you know the answer to yet, but how do you want to share the, the idea of grief with the children in your life? Oh, that is a big question. <laughs> I think about it. I do think about it all the time because having kids now. So there, I have a 13 
12-year-old stepdaughter, a 12-year-old stepson, and a nine-year-old girl. And I was 13 when I lost my mom. So I'm seeing a lot of myself in her. And it's it's really like incredible to see maybe like, oh, was I thinking those kinds of things when I was 13? But what one thing that I I don't know, I try to tell them is that you have permission to feel whatever you feel. Mm. So just having permission mm-hmm. to feel things. I hope they never need to go through what I went through. Mm-hmm. But also having these kids, I've been kind of exposed to kid shows and movies. And <laughs> grief is something that needs to be kind of dealt with a little bit in in their environment. Um, it's really interesting how it's portrayed in the shows they watch and the books they read and things like that. Maybe I'm a bit more unique and a bit more open to talking about it. So if they do ever breach the subject with me, I'll be it's just a bit more open. Um, but I definitely try to you know, talk about it here and there, even this podcast, you know, I told them this is what I'm doing and this is what I'm talking about. And they, you know, they found it very interesting. It's starting to register like, oh, she went through this. This is something that people go through and she was our age. And so I think just sharing is a good way, Um, not necessarily forcing anything on them, but just sharing experiences and maybe discussing, say, after Frozen 2, like, oh, did you guys notice the grief themes in there? And (laughs) uh, it was difficult for this character, you know, like uh, just pointing things out a little bit, I think, but that's definitely, it's still so new for me. It's only been about six months. And so it's a good question, Heather. And I, (laughs) it's, you know, I have to figure out how I'm going to, what kind of role I'll play in that Mm -hmm. storyline. You kind of broached our next kind of topic. You talked about TV and film, so, you know, we always try to bring back that we have talked about TV and film through this whole episode, which has been <laughs> which is awesome. absolutely amazing. What are you seeing in film and television that you think is showing grief in an accurate way? And like, what do you want to see represented more? And this could be for both on the kids side, as you are talking about it and saying, I don't think there necessarily has enough of it to like adult side yeah. of things, which I don't think we have <laughs> enough of it either. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's such an interesting topic um, I think like really well done shows and movies can help us for sure mm-hmm. explore this scary misunderstood inevitable human experience which is death and grief yeah. I feel like you can't really portray grief in an hour episode of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> or, that's just an example what? of a show anyway, <laughs> <laughs> which deals with a lot of death right like there's a yeah, lot of death there's a lot of death as, as it, someone said uh that we talked to before is that no one makes it out alive. So we're <laughs> not just Grey's Anatomy, but, but I life. mean, <laughs> in life. Exactly. In life. And every show, there's like, there's death in every single show. If you think about it, I don't love how it's sugarcoated and glamorized and dramatized in Hollywood. Um, you know, it's like someone dies, they are buried. It's a beautiful funeral. And then they move on, mm-hmm. you know, or it's all peaceful, passing away, crying, beautiful music playing. And, and now we think that this is normal and that that's what this beautiful, peaceful moment is all the time. And it distorts our reality. And I would love to see it represented more in kids' shows and in a way to give kids tools to see and feel grief. Mm-hmm. Because death happens in a snap most of the time. It'd be nice to like be able to learn a little bit of how to deal with it. But when I think about like the best descriptions of grief in film and television it's it's shows like 
afterlife, like Ricky Gervais as afterlife, mm-hmm. or This Is Us, where grief really permeates every episode. The whole series is that's what it's about. It's not just an event that happened. Um, to me, I connect with those because it's like it really portrays the genuine hard work of mourning. Mm-hmm. The writers know that grief is not just a clean story arc. And mm-hmm. I really respect that, that they've taken the time to make it messy and not make it beautiful. And then there's other shows that are humorous. And I really respect that too, like um, The Good Place mm, and Dent yeah. Me. Oh, like yeah. an Applegate oh, Dent uh, me, so. show where her husband yeah. dies. I loved that show because it was light and heartwarming and funny, but also freaking dark. Yeah, and totally. Real. What about Fleabag? Like, oh my God, Fleabag. I didn't even think of that. I, that's amazing. And that's grief. Like losing your best friend has such an impact on you in adulthood. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Um, it's just genuine. That's so genuine. I feel like every Disney movie is like their mom died or their dad died. Like there's always a dead parent or dead, <laughs> dead parents, but then they don't talk about it. Like it's just, I'm an orphan. And it's because it's that idea that you know, you're more interesting when something bad happens to you, maybe. I don't just know. Bullshit. I, I don't, it's bullshit. It's <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. It's just shortcuts and sometimes laziness, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sometimes a lazy storytelling technique and which I have I often kill parents in my pilots. But I mean <laughs> <laughs> So you you need to change. <laughs> no, no, but I But you deal with I the, put the I put grief there. in it. Yeah. Like I have a show that starts with someone dying and the whole th- show is about grief. It's about the that the memories of grief that come to you at the times that you don't realize they'll come to you. Those moments of emotion, like, you know, being in a place and remembering. Because it just is how I, myself, like, I couldn't return home after my aunt died. I was so devastated that I felt like if I returned home, I would see her. Mm. Yeah, I totally understand that feeling. And I couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get it. When I... Returned to the hospital where my mom was. Uh, she died of cancer, and and I remember a lot of like months of my childhood were spent in the hospital cafeteria or in the lobby playing around. And I was like, I kind of have to go back there, but I'm I was so terrified, and it was extremely cathartic, um, but so so scary. And you kind of forget that those are powerful. And maybe as creators, we put those stories in our works because that's how we can revisit them and yeah. make peace yeah heal in a safe way maybe right it feels safer yeah, it's if you're creating so it yeah yeah and also just again like um i think when i think about the reason why i create is to and we said this kind of earlier is that i need i want people to feel less alone yeah so i put myself into it so that you see this and you go yeah that's me and I, you know, maybe I didn't see it in that capacity or the understanding that, again, as grief is a natural part of being human, therefore it has many manifestations mm-hmm. and that we can't just box it into one experience and that it would be beneficial for us as humans to not only talk about it, which we don't really are, we're not very good at talking about lots of complicated things, but also just seeing them in different capacities, like seeing the story of you and your mother and like, creating something with her in that capacity and then seeing Ricky Gervais's afterlife, seeing dead to me, seeing Fleabag, you're seeing grief in many forms told in different ways that can help someone see it maybe in a different light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's your job to honor your own grief. You know, no one can ever understand your grief and 
it's perfectly normal in grief to want to sleep. It's perfectly normal to want to be with people. It's perfectly normal to cry. It's perfectly normal to laugh. It's perfectly normal to cancel plans. I just feel like, yes, things are portrayed in our world and books and, and social media and everything. And you feel like you should act in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the thing that I want to tell people maybe experiencing grief is that you can give yourself permission to feel whatever it is you need to feel or want to feel. And mm-hmm. you're the only one who understands it and that's okay. And everything is normal when you're dealing with grief. Don't compare yourself to anyone you can relate to someone and maybe that'll help but I don't think you have to do what someone else did or feel a certain way that you think you're supposed to feel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're giving people permission again to to feel what we have to do mm-hmm. right yeah it's an intense topic but I, I'm so grateful that you're giving me a platform to talk about it and revisit it I haven't spoken about this in a, a little bit of time actually so it's it's really interesting for me to kind of think about what's happened in my life since I dove, took that deep dive into my own mm-hmm. grief in front of the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> I know as like a bystander, well, not bystander, I'm in your life, <laughs> as, your, as your friend, oh. watching you work through the process of creating Unmothered and then your kind of rebuilding of yourself in a way, like after the after it all came out, to where you are now. I feel like your world grew, your heart grew. Oh, you're, you're, Sarah and I are friends, and that means a lot to me. And I kind of forget how how much I've grown and how much work I've done. And I do feel like there was a little piece of a puzzle missing in my heart. And going through this with my mom and with so many other people and me feeling the love and accepting all the love that I got from friends and strangers has totally filled that hole. And it's so funny. You think that the more people are in your life or the more you have to commit to, you'll have less time, but I feel like it's the opposite. Now that I'm able to put more people in my heart, I have so much more room. It's like this one little piece I needed to to maybe get outside of myself and yeah and it feels so refreshing to be to have that space that space for someone else you've had a big year and you just got married how did you think be- before what it would be like on your wedding day with your mom not here to what it was maybe like actually on your wedding day that's such a nice question. You know, I love I love when people ask questions like that. When you ask questions about my mom and how it impacts my life, it, it makes me feel like, you know, her memory is still important. My wedding day happened December 21st, 2021. And it was the best day I've ever had, I have mm-hmm. to say. And I, I have... I had in the past been worried about how it was going to go, but I decided what was best for me was to elope and just be with my husband and his kids and have a very intimate ceremony, just the five of us. And that was the best decision I've ever made because um, I was able to just be in the moment and not make it so much about my sad things that could infiltrate that day. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. It was great. You know, and it was one of the first times in my life where I didn't 
really dramatize uh, the death of my mom and it felt really refreshing. And I felt like she would have been okay with that. And um, I just enjoyed the moment. And yeah, obviously I had little things that I did for myself that reminded me of her. I wore her ring around my neck and, you know, I would touch it once in a while. And those things are always, I'm always going to do those things. I'm always going to communicate with her in some way, but it was like a, a release. I feel like I didn't put myself in a situation where she would obviously be a missing piece of it. Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I did protect myself in that way. <laughs> my husband's mother died when he was in college. And so for our wedding, we did, she loved Motown. <laughs> so we danced to a song that she would have loved mm. for our dance. And then his um, aunt took my bouquet and like took it to her grave. Mm. Oh, that's wonderful. That's such a good idea. Yeah, just gave, like, I don't know, just allowed her to be part of it in some way. But to do that song, it was just like, let's pick something that she would be her favorite, but joyous, right? Mm -hmm. And also, like, trying to find the least sexist one, which is great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Motown. Um, oh, oh, most of the music industry. Um, <laughs> it was beautiful when you said that. I just wanted to share because I just felt like, yeah, it's like those little things that you don't that are so important in the in the moment for for you yeah preserving memories is so important yeah and of somebody who maybe hasn't bereaved a uh, loss of a parent you know or somebody really important in their life where they would be part of those big moments it's probably helpful to hear how other people have gone through those moments and how they've maybe yeah. thought to honor their family or their people that have have they've lost yeah. and yeah, exactly. There's no like right way or wrong way to honor somebody. And I think the the way I did it, which was so private, I think I might have done it like that because my career or my life is a little bit more public. Yeah. And yeah. I did lay this story out on the table for the entire world to see for so long that I think I needed to just feel just uh, very private about it. Again, it's okay. It would have been too hard. I think that's a big part of it too, Sarah. Like the minute I would have opened the floodgates, I would have just been a mess. Yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't want that, especially with, with kids around and all that stuff. So um, I, I honored her in a happy way. Yeah. I think it's beautiful to just be able to have something so special and so in such an intimate way and, and the way that you wanted it. And there's, again, like we all can travel this path in the way that we, that feels best for us and without, with permission, but like our own permission. But even hearing Marie, you say like, you have permission to feel what you're feeling. Like, I think people need to sometimes just hear that. We just need to say that. And so I'm glad that you did. And I'm glad that you gave yourself permission to share with us today. You kind of have a little bit of this, but you know, just any advice or resources? Yeah. Um, I found books and films and documentaries have been comforting to me at different times in my life, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I find grief resources so subjective and I hesitate to give too many recommendations because everyone is at such a different space in their grief and sometimes too help self-helpy, sometimes it's too science-based, sometimes it's too intense. So it's just such an individual process, but some things in different stages in my life that I've been drawn to are 
the more research-based, like obviously the Kubler-Ross and David Kessler research about grief, their framework is more science research-based and can be like a nice way to study grief if, if you're kind of not in an emotional mode. But I personally like reading biographies and things that uh, of people who have also experienced the same type of thing as me. That brings me a lot of comfort. When I was younger, I uh, in my 20s, I really related to this book called Motherless Daughters by Hope Edelman. And not everyone loves this book, but I remember in the reading it in the bathtub and it's it's little stories about women who've lost their mothers at different stages in their life. And it blew my mind. And I was like, oh my God, they're feeling the exact same things that I'm feeling. And that felt really good for me in my in my 20s. And even fiction books where you know, someone experiences something that I feel like I've experienced makes me feel good. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. It's, you know, her point of view on incredible losses she's suffered or, you know, even Wild by Cheryl Strait. I really connected with with her. She lost her mother and went on this adventure to deal with it. You know, those kinds of books are resources that I like. Therapy, I would recommend, you know, there's grief therapists. Often what happens in grief is you end up comforting others more than yourself because death makes people uncomfortable. And so if you can find a space where you can talk to someone that you don't have to feel like you have to make them feel better, I think that's super, super important. As soon as possible after a loss, I just find that's very freeing and healthy. Often the bereaved have to make everybody else feel okay. Like you're like, Oh, are you, you know, like you just don't know what to say to somebody who's lost something. And so, or someone, so I've, I know, I just know that I, at the, in the past have been like, wouldn't talk about it or I'd want to say something, but that I wouldn't because I didn't want to like make anybody upset. And then, but now the more that I've been learning about grief literacy and things about grief, I'm not going to stop myself from being like, hey, like, I remember when Auntie did this and she was so funny and this was a great thing and like, share those memories. Or like, if somebody's feeling a certain way to be like, I see you, I see how you're feeling. I'm not going to try to change it. If you need some help, if you need me to do anything specific, I can do it. But I just want to acknowledge that you're feeling what you're feeling and I see it. As opposed to just like, pretending it didn't happen. Which is, I think, what everybody seems to do. We just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah, and move on. You know, we have like doulas, birth for birth, but there's no, not that we need death doulas, but I think they exist. There are death doulas, yeah. But they're meant for the, I feel like they're more so for the person who's passing, little, and not so much about the people who are bereaving. And I feel like, or that are are lost and then are going to have to continue on in life, right? And I feel like that's Mm -hmm. where there's a disconnect, where we're just, we prepare, and that's what the first, originally the five stages of grief were for the people that were dying, not for the people that are, are, are left living. And so we as a society have to shift that. And I know it's different in other cultures. Death and grieving and mourning is different. And in the West, we just kind of have this idea that we just keep on going. Just keep on being productive and move on with your life, right? It just needs to change, man. It needs to change. <laughs> Yeah, step by step, little bit by little bit. And with spaces like this. Now, for the people who are listening and they want to like see your work and see what you do, uh, where can they find you? Um, well, Unmothered is um, available on the National Film Board's website. So, NFB 
www.theatrecollective.ca is where you can find that particular film. My production company is called Productions Law. Other films I worked on on that website, but you can you can Google my name and, and some of my work pops up. Just watch, if you're going to watch a mother, you know, be prepared and um, watch it in a, a space that you feel ready to do so and just know that it can be triggering and I just want like we've talked a lot about taking care of yourself and just watch it in a time that you feel like you can handle that kind of content Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm. yeah yeah Um, just thank you so much for you know coming on the podcast to opening your heart to us and to like sharing your experiences Um, I just think it would be so helpful for so many people not just creators but anyone who has experienced loss of any kind just to have this open and frank conversation. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It was so great to talk to Marie France about this specific subject, especially since we talked to the folks at Being Your Human about grief, to then talk about grief through the lens of filmmaking and the idea of audience, I think was so fascinating because it's again, like, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our audiences? Like keeping those things in mind as creators, I think is really fascinating, but it's also us as people, as viewers, as those experiencing all of these things, like how do we um, protect ourselves? Maybe there are things that we don't need to or want to see and that's okay. Yeah. I think that's a big thing too, like to step back as a viewer because I often have my filmmaker hat on and then I'm like, wait, am I in the right space to be watching this specific content? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I think if you are able or you feel like you're in the right space to watch um, Unmothered, you should because I feel like it was beautifully done and I loved it. And I feel like we should celebrate Marie France and her beautiful filmmaking. So you can check it out on NFB. But yeah, please watch. It was great. I guess let's uh, talk about our awesome things for this week. My awesome thing that was just announced last week, we started last week, was the Respectability Lab. Respectability is a diverse and disability-led nonprofit that works to create systematic change in how our society views and values people with disabilities. And so basically, they tried, they first started to advance policies and practices to empower people with disabilities to have a better future. And they've been working a lot with creators and other people in the entertainment industry who, you know, have a lot of say of what goes on screen and who are the people who get to tell the story. So their mission is to fight stigmas and advance opportunities so people with disabilities can fully participate in all aspects of community. So it's such a great honor to be selected. I'm one of the, I think one of 20 people selected for this lab. And it's from people from all over the world, you know, just only starting it. It's been already amazing because I feel like there's, even though there's so many differences between us, because again, disability isn't a monolith, but there's so many differences, but also so many similarities. And it feels so nurturing to be in a community that I, for a long time, didn't feel like I could belong in Hmm. because having a non-visible disability means that I felt like I couldn't belong in that community. And to be in this group of people and to feel Like we all want to create more opportunities and make things better, like similar to what we're doing on this podcast. Like how do we create nuanced portrayal of some of these things Mm -hmm. in in our world in terms of like the stories we're telling? This is a chance to be able to, you know, explore this and have like really candid open conversations about this and also about things like, you know, uh, disclosure and like how do I not 
have to relive my tra- trauma to be able to tell a story. Like those things that we kind of ta- touched on today, we will also touch on um, as part of this program. And I just am so honored to be selected and also accepted. Yeah. All oh, that must feel so good. And congratulations. It's very exciting. Thank you. Just taking steps to change the world, my sister. I appreciate it. One one thing at a time. One lab at a time. One podcast episode at a time. So uh, my awesome thing is that I went and visited my family in Toronto last week, and I didn't take my laptop with me. And that's a huge, huge win for my brain and my (laughs) self-care and all the things, is I went on a vacation with my family and didn't walk it. I did one small thing of work, which was also going to, I'm going to shout out as awesome. I got to connect with Tom and Jenny from the Aphantasia Network in person and had a coffee with them and it was brilliant. So like the podcast, yeah, connected us and I got to see them talk all things Aphantasia in person, which was so fun. But then, yeah, I was like able to actually just relax. Like one night I just sat in the hotel room where typically I'd be like editing a podcast or doing something work related and I just totally just chilled out. And so I feel a little refreshed. I feel tired, but tired not because I was up late traveling home, but refreshed from not actually not actually taking time off, which I think I would recommend for all. Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. And I was really happy I got to see you and got to hang out with you. So, I mean, I'm one of those people that you saw. So <laughs> that was pretty awesome. All my siblings have moved to Toronto. So my mom and I and my daughter came out to visit the siblings in Toronto. And it was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Brains. Brains is hosted and produced by Heather and Sarah Taylor and mixed and mastered by Tony Bao. Our theme song is by our little brother, Depish, and our graphics were created by Perpetual Notion. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us and tell your friends to tune in. You can reach us on Instagram or Twitter at Brains Podcast, spelled B-R-Triple-A-I-N-S podcast. You can also go to our website, brainspodcast.com, where you can contact us, subscribe, and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. Until next time, I'm your host, Sarah. And I'm your host, Heather. Bye! Bye!